from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up to today's show, Smart Water. And additionally joined by Gavin Coburn, who will discuss the science of sports. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Lynn. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? So have you heard of this chemical called smart water? I try and ignore everything with smart in it. Well, actually, it's more like a phosphorescent solution. Becoming popular in the UK where it's used as an agent to stop people from stealing metals. Really? Yeah, so if believe it or not, copper and lead and those commodities are now so expensive that People are stealing it off the roofs, and churches apparently are one of the prime victims. <laughs> Must pray harder. Anyways, this compound, you coat it on whatever you want, and it glows neon green under UV. So whoever touches it will get some of the chemical on their skin, and it's presumably a way for police to track down people who've... So was it going to be like random searches? Maybe it's, these thieves are not so aware that there's compound coated on it. Unless, of course, the thieves are listening to our show. <laughs> you think, anyways, is interested in purchasing this compound, just go to www.smartwater.com. All right, Frank, do you think if you drank the smart water, you'd actually be very smart? I present myself. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly brimming with intelligence. Or lack of. <laughs> This has very little to do with intelligence itself, except for the very intelligent people working on this particular study. A major problem in aging population is the development of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's disease. Right. So a new promise in this regard has actually come from research into in- induced pluripotent stem cells, previously used to treat sickle cell disease in mice. And now investigators have been able to use these what are called IPS cells to alleviate a Parkinson's-like movement disorder in rats. So this was work done at the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Rudolf Janish's lab by Marius Vernig. What they've done is they've used a mouse model of Parkinson's disease where a part of the brain, mostly the area called striatum, what they've done is they've used these IPS cells to make dopamine-producing neurons. So the damaged area of the brain, which no longer can produce dopamine, they inject these dopamine-producing neurons into that region. And what they find, surprisingly, is that these mice now are able to move correctly before they're moving around in kind of a random haphazard circle. Once you inject the dopamine, they have regular movement conditions. So this is very fascinating because it suggests that you don't really even need to do much other than just inject these neurons into that part of the brain. I'm not really clear what the mechanism is, whether it's just the dopamine production of these neurons or if these neurons actually have to form connections at some point. So that still needs to be worked out. But it certainly shows a lot of promise for future work in this level. A little bit more work needs to be done before it's actually even tried in humans. Fascinating work, and it was published in our very favorite journal, The Proceedings. As a National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Gavin Coburn will join us to discuss the science of sports. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, sports are such an integral part of life that few may stop to ponder the science behind a curveball or the physics of the perfect golf swing. But optimal performance in sports often requires an in-depth knowledge of the science behind it. Joining us to discuss this issue is Mr. Gavin Coburn, head of Popular Mechanics Research Department. Along with his cohorts at Popular Mechanics, they have compiled the new book, Why a Curveball Curves, the Incredible Science of Sports, which explores this issue for a general audience. Mr. Coburn, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's great to be here, Charles. Thank you. Uh, well, it's really our pleasure, and I think it's really a, a very fascinating book, especially uh, for the sports enthusiast. Uh, I think a lot of people might see Popular Mechanics as an automotive magazine or maybe one that's full of do-it-yourself projects. But what's interesting is that over our 105-year history, actually, we've written a lot about the science and technology of sports. Uh, This was a great opportunity to sort of go through our archives and collect the best of those stories in one place. And then we updated some of them and we added a few new things for readers. I see. And who were you able to get as contributors for the book? Oh, well, we've had any number of players and athletes uh, and coaches and physicists. Uh, my personal favorite story actually ran initially 80 years ago. Uh, it's an essay with Babe Ruth all about his approach to hitting. Wow, sounds fascinating. I mean, was it really difficult to get these particular people? You know, there's a little bit of legwork involved in everything, but the more that we explain our projects to people, the more they're interested in getting involved with it. We haven't had too much trouble getting athletes, for instance, who are currently playing the games to help us out, because while people always want to talk about the final score and they want to talk about momentum and they want to talk about, you know, the streaks a certain team is on, when we approach, say, Ryan Zimmerman, for instance, and we say, hey, we want to break down exactly what happens when you hit a home run, when we sort of capture a freeze frame on that exciting moment and say, what are the physics at play right here, he says, hey, that that actually sounds kind of interesting. Let's talk. Wow. It really does sound fascinating. I think certainly fascinating for all the uh, Chicago fans that uh, you actually got the Cubs manager, Lou Piniella. Yeah, Lou Piniella actually has worked with us periodically through the years, and we've run a couple of things that he's done. Uh, He has a great essay in here all about also home run hitting, all about the approach that a batter should take at the plate and watching for your pitch and the way to sort of drive it and understand what's happening on the field. Uh, I'm curious maybe about the uh, the titular question of the book, why does a curveball curve? Sure. For people who are interested in the physics equations and and going in-depth with the math, as your listeners may be, we go into all of that in the book. For the casual fan, it sort of revolves around something called the Magnus Force, which you may have talked about in the past, uh, which sort of deals with the way a spinning ball changes the difference in pressure in the air as it's spinning and it flies through the air. It holds true for whether you're talking about a curveball breaking or whether you're talking about David Beckham bending a free kick or the way that I accidentally slice a ping-pong ball across my basement. The sort of bottom line is that whichever way a ball is spinning, the front of the ball spins, that's the way the ball is going to bite. So if you have a curveball with a tremendous amount of top spin on it, it bites down toward the ground. If you have David Beckham kicking the ball on the side so it has a lot of side spin, it tends to curve whichever way he is aimed at. I see. So in, in a sense, it's sort of application of the Bernoulli force in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, interesting correlations to the way aircraft fly, for sure. Mm-hmm. So there's quite some talk of the mysterious gyro ball. Is there an explanation of that? <laughs> you know, actually, that's been fascinating to look into. And we originally ran a piece back in late 2006 that talked about the current state of affairs with what we knew about it then. We touched base with players who supposedly can throw the ball. We talked to the Japanese scientists who supposedly built this thing in a lab and then took it on the playing field and tried it out. And it's been great to catch up with various physicists throughout the last two years and see where those studies stand and what is sort of coming to light as there has been more time to look into.
into it. What was thought at the time that we originally ran that story was that it may break something like a slider on steroids, whereas you have a slider in baseball that comes in sort of like a fastball and then sort of tails away to one side or the other at the end. This was supposed to break very hard on a flat surface. Uh, It wasn't supposed to drop at all. It was just supposed to leave. And a lot of people looked at it and said, well, this is utterly extraordinary if it actually exists at all. And they weren't sure because this was all supposedly being done in labs in Japan and, and there wasn't any clear rationale for how much of it was really being done on the playing field. What we are seeing now as we sort of check in with these people is that absolutely it does happen, but it doesn't break the way people thought it does, and it doesn't do it nearly as dramatically. What's been great to learn is, is that it sort of is a co-opted cricket pitch. There's something in cricket called a googly, which is just a lot of fun for me to say, and it has a, a bit of a spin when it bounces, but obviously because a baseball is not bouncing on its way to the plate, it sort of shudders a little bit in midair, but it looks like the gyro ball actually acts more like a changeup. It just sort of doesn't do a whole lot as far as breaking one way or the other. Confusing to the picture who might be expecting a breaking ball. Uh, that's it, actually. It seems like it would have a lot of value when you get into the head games that pitchers play with batters, what the batter is anticipating, where he's looking, what he's expecting in a certain count. And if you give him anything outside of what he's looking for, puts the pitcher in a position of having an advantage, even if the ball itself doesn't do a whole lot of fancy stuff on the way to the plate. Hmm. Golfing season, I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in what is the physics of a perfect golf swing. Well, you know, that's been fun to look into. The golf swing may be the most analyzed thing in sports. And what's great is that ultimately the pros seem to agree it's kind of a results may vary animal. Hmm. If you have something that you're happy with that works well and you can do it on a consistent basis, that's about as good as the amateur golfer may get. Now, beyond that, we actually break down the physics of what various instructors are suggesting, the way Tiger Woods has reinvented his swing a couple of times now on the PGA Tour. Tiger has been a fascinating person to look at because when he came on the tour, he had the unbelievable length off the tee. He was hitting the ball farther than some people had ever seen. What ended up happening is that he was cheating his clubs down almost. He was flattening his left wrist as he came through the ball, and so it was almost like he was sculling it accurately. He was hitting these laser beams that had no loft to them, and subsequently he really couldn't control the shots very well. We go into sort of the mechanics of how he reinvented his swing the first time with Butch Harmon, and he incorporated something that he called a two-plane swing. And the idea was that you would bring the club back during your backswing on one plane, and then you would come through the ball on a separate plane. But what he found was that it was a particularly violent motion, and while he was winning with it, it was actually doing damage to his body. He was hyperextending his left knee on his follow-through. And so after a couple of surgeries, they realized, this just isn't sustainable, and he had to reinvent his swing again, and he sort of simplified it. And it's amazing to me when I look at the golf swing and I see that there seem like 200 different moving parts that have to be operating exactly in concert all the time, which sort of makes it remarkable that my driver ever finds the fairway. Well, certainly there are a lot of different ways of getting that club head to the ball. I mean, if you look at Jim Furyk's swing, for example, that's a very unorthodox swing, but he manages to hit it very consistently. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and if you look out at any of the guys standing across from you at the driving range, there are a lot of unorthodox swings there. I like the fact that eventually people just kind of shrug and say, you know what, if you can do it on a consistent basis and it works for you, that's what you need to be doing. If you know, if you never have a clue what's going to happen when you bring the club back, then maybe there's some technique that we can go into here in the book and we can talk about that'll help you sort of refine that a little bit. But at the end of the day, do what works best for you. <laughs> Perhaps the other side of the coin, at least in golf, is that there's so much research and development on the equipment itself, perhaps more so than any other sport. 
Absolutely there is. It's been fascinating to see how that's come to a point now where they're actually trying to ratchet it back a little bit. Mm. You know, when you have Tiger with his power and his length who just goes and dominates Augusta at the Masters, you know, year after year, and the folks down in Georgia are getting a little tired of taking a bulldozer to their course and restructuring it because they like it a little bit. You actually have things like the technology and the dimples of the balls being ratcheted back. You have the power of the clubs being ratcheted back. You know, you don't see pros using those big Bertha drivers, for instance. There are limits on it, just exactly like they're sort of governor plates on some NASCARs, you know, for various races. There are points where they say, all right, we're going to give you this much of an advantage here, but then we just got to put a lid on it because you're doing things that we weren't expecting you to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, you know, there's so many different parts to this book. Which part of them did you find most fascinating? Interestingly, for what we're talking about, I really enjoy the mental stuff. Hmm. The math has been fascinating for me to learn about on a number of different levels. Uh, But what's really interesting is that I like getting into the way that athletes think about the game. What I've realized is that these people get to a certain point where their almost freakish athletic ability sort of balances out. They find other people with equivalent abilities, and so all of a sudden the mental game becomes exponentially more important. There's a great thing in here, I think, about Wayne Gretzky, and it talks about how he was never the biggest or fastest or strongest guy on the ice, but what he was able to do is think ahead better than his opponents. He was able to read subtle clues in them, sort of like he was reading poker players, and he was able to say, okay, I see where the action is going, and I'm going to get there first. So it's fascinating because I, you know, I'm never going to dunk a basketball. I'm never going to hit one out of Yankee Stadium, but I can sort of sit here, and I can appreciate the way that guys were looking at the game, and I can sort of use that as a fan to interpret what's happening and anticipate what's coming next. And is there ways that people can improve their mental game? Well, I think a certain amount of it's just familiarity, and that's certainly one of the things that's most intangible, which perhaps is what makes it kind of fun for me because it's still a little bit mystical. You know, when we talk to these athletes, as eager as they are to help us and talk about what they're doing, they can't always articulate exactly everything that happens. You know, there's a point where they say, okay, I want a bat, for instance, that is this heavy, that is this length. I can swing it this fast. But then I just sort of do it. You know, I can't necessarily break down entirely the technique. I can't break down what I'm looking for or really why I'm thinking about it. But this is just what comes to me. And perhaps that is still the kind of uh, neat thing that separates those people from the rest of us. Hmm. There is a little bit in here on proving your visual acuity, in fact. Absolutely. We start the book talking about how important the eyes are, which on some level is is kind of obvious, but on another level is pretty neat that we talk, you know, we go through all these pages talking about the science and the technology and the way things have evolved. But at the end of the day, actually, the eyes are still sort of the opening through which we're seeing everything and that we can interpret all the information that's happening around us. We talk a little bit about the development of contact lenses specifically for sports. We talk a little bit about vision correction surgery, you know, that Tiger has gone through and some of these other athletes. And it's neat to kind of step back and say, okay, something that seems relatively simple and fundamental to all of us is at the very heart of everything that's happening on a sports field as well. Certainly something that, of course, is very controversial in sports is effects that drugs, enhancing drugs, can actually have. Uh, Sure, absolutely there are. We're just sort of now trying to go back and kind of do the maze backwards and figure out how we can most appropriately figure out who was using and when they were using, obviously with baseball, you know, releasing its Mitchell report and other things that have happened in the last few months. This is something that we can't pretend isn't happening. You know, the Tour de France can't pretend that for years there weren't people doping. It's interesting when you go back and you talk about the Tour, for instance, and, and you 
try and say, okay, well, what this person accomplished seems a little bit fishy, but you don't really have any evidence of it. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that we have to sort of delve into in the book. You know, we'd be remiss if we pretended that it wasn't out there happening. And we look a little bit forward as far as the gene doping issue is concerned. That's something that's actually being talked about seriously now if it hasn't necessarily become entirely mainstream. But we analyze the fact that there is a constant race between the chemists and the people who are trying to catch them. And so far, it's pretty clear that the good guys have not been winning. Hmm. Have the rules had to slowly adapt to changes in the technology in this I think so. I can't necessarily talk about rules changes that regard specifically performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, there have been different detection methods. There have been different rules instituted for how often players will be tested. There absolutely have been rules changes throughout the years based on more offensive games. And if we sort of figure that the boom in performance-enhancing drug use was a product of people wanting a more offensive game, wanting higher scores, wanting more home runs. So there is some sort of a connection there, I would imagine. You know, whether we're talking about hockey rules, whether we're talking about uh, other sports that have made changes, the strike zone in baseball, for instance, has shrunk through the years to try and increase the batter's advantage at the plate and try and increase runs scored. I think there is some sort of a thread there that does run through all those factors, yeah. Uh, you briefly mentioned controversy around gene doping. Maybe you can explain what that is. Well, ultimately, it's one of those things that, that's being studied now, particularly in regards to the Olympics, and it's a, a factor uh, that as technology advances, you know, on a medical level for good purposes, people are going to try and corrupt that and use that for sort of their own ends. And it's a matter of people going in on a, the most fundamental microscopic level with athletes and trying to tweak the system, basically trying to enhance things and, and give people advantages in ways that they never have before. I think this is one of those evolutions that we wish wasn't necessary happening, but like everything else, doesn't stay the same. Hmm. I have no idea how far things are going to happen. Obviously, there is lots of science being done elsewhere as far as cloning and other things are concerned. Lots of people are experimenting all over the place in lots of different things, and I think it probably is safe to say that some aspect of those tests may eventually make their way into athletics and into concepts for cheating, hopefully concepts for good. Hopefully there can be things done that would help athletes heal faster after massive injuries. Uh, I would imagine that anything that can be used for good can also be used for evil. Indeed, indeed. One other sport which uh, I, I find particularly fascinating is boxing, and particularly how these uh, boxers are able to uh, first withstand these punches and, of course, then throw effective punches as well. Absolutely. My knowledge of boxing doesn't extend too far beyond the casual fans, but it's one of those things that I've been getting lots more interested in as we started working on this book. It's been fascinating to watch the fights and figure out how it is that small guys can generate such power and at the same time can manage to withstand the punches that you were talking about. We go into a little bit of the math and we talk about some of the training processes and we talk about force that some of the fighters get hit with. It was interesting, someone asked me the other day whether I would rather be tackled by an NFL player or punched by Mike Tyson and I actually had to sit there and think for a minute and ultimately I decided probably getting drilled by an NFL player would be better because there would be pads involved that were sort of meant to disperse the impact of that blow and that were meant to be protective, whereas boxing, you know, really is just kind of fundamentally dramatic that you have two reasonably unprotected guys standing there in a ring punching each other in the face. It's sort of amazing to think about. Yeah, a little bit more concentrated power. Uh, for sure. You know, if, if you're getting drilled on the chin, that's uh, all that stuff is going, uh, the energy, all that force is going straight into the chin. Right, right. thing you mentioned football, there is a certain technique to a good tackle without actually getting hurt. 
Well, you know, it was fascinating that when we started looking into this and when we began talking to professors at various universities in the United States who were working on the evolution of safety for football, they were talking about improving helmets and they were talking about using sensors to figure out the impact that people were getting hit with. We did find, interestingly enough, that the average defensive back hits a wide receiver with about a half a ton of force. And that's for one hit, and then that's when he's driven into the turf, and then they get right back up and they do it over again. It's amazing to think about the fact that these players go through the average of a few car crashes per game, and then they get right back up and they do it again. And they strap on the pads and they do it again next week. And it's amazing to see the way their bodies deteriorate. You know, equally amazing is the long-term effects that that has. You know, there have been recent stories about the NFL Players Association helping retired players whose medical conditions are just rapidly deteriorating. And, And it's really sobering to see these people that we cheered for and had hero worship for on Sunday afternoons in the NFL really kind of falling apart as those injuries begin to take their toll later in life. There much actually being done on trying to prevent those injuries in the first place? Well, there is. There have been developments in padding, ultimately, and developments in helmet technology, but it's interesting because even saying that makes it sound almost somewhat futile when you're mm-hmm. taking guys who are this big mm-hmm. and this strong and this fast and telling them to run into each other as hard as they possibly can <laughs> and then get up and do it again. It sort of is barbaric on that level. It's fascinating. I'm an NFL fan. I, you know, I feel sort of guilty for it on that level. But outside of the developments that we've seen with the basic safety, outside, I think, of any large-scale rules changes in the game, this sort of is the path that we have chosen to go down here with the NFL. Mm. Uh, Well, it does look like we're running uh, slowly out of time, but again, you mentioned popular mechanics has been covering uh, sports and uh, sports science for quite some time. Is there plans for perhaps another sequel book? Yeah, I think we would love to. This has gotten uh, a great reception so far, and I think we'd be really interested in doing it. Uh, It's sort of a matter of finding enough new things to look into and and to compile uh, enough stories again to create another book. That was sort of where this one came from when we were sitting around thinking about new sports stories and and thought, you know what, actually we have all this great stuff that we've done in the past, and and we don't have it collected in one place. Uh, I think certainly it seems like the the interest may be there, and and our interest is there on our end. Uh, I'd love to see a sequel to this book sure everybody else would as well. Uh, of course, the book is called Why a Curveball Curves, The Incredible Science of Sports. Uh, Mr. Coburn, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Charles. Thanks. And you were just listening to Mr. Gavin Coburn discussing the science of sports. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic God Game or Just a Poser. 
So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they got game or not, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Coburn, ready to play the game? Yeah, let's All right, here we go. Person number one, got game or just a poser, the Fed Reserve Chairman, Ben Bernanke. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say got game reluctantly, but I'm going to do it optimistically and say that we're looking to him to help sort of turn things around here. So, uh, so I'm putting my full support behind him and hoping that stuff doesn't get a whole lot worse. Uh, all right, number two is the artist Prince. Oh, God, game. <laughs> yeah, everyone who's, anyone who saw him realizes that that guy may be six years old at this point, but he's still got game. <laughs> All right, very good. And number three, of course, is the golfer Tiger Woods. Complete game. Got so much game, it's not even funny. It's an offensive amount of game. <laughs> he needs to spread the game around, I think. Yeah. You know what he does? He's, he's a little bit like Lance Armstrong. He doesn't even care about winning these things. All he cares about is the major. <laughs> All right, uh, number four is Microsoft CEO Bill Gates. <laughs> uh, you know what? He, he, he's got he's got game. Few people can actually lean back in their chair and say, you know, I really helped change the world, and, and I think he did. I'm becoming a Mac fan faster and faster every day. But Gates, he's got game. Okay, I sense some reluctance there. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, all right. And finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, George Bush. Totally a poser. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would say that only because I don't think I've called anyone else a poser yet. But I'm going to say that we've got, a, we've got a couple of months left. And, and I think the country as a whole, uh, regardless of how anyone feels about the candidates that we have now, I think, you know, after eight years, the country as a whole is, is ready for a change and looking to go in a new direction. All right. All right. Well, Mr. Coburn, I do want to thank you for sticking around uh, playing our game and, of course, talking about the book, which, of course, is Why Curveball Curves, The Incredible Science of Sports. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. It's great. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.